First Samuel effectively moves Israel from the chaos in the days of the judges, where there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes, to the anointing after a man after God's own heart, King David. And so in this time of transition, we're seeing both the decline and fall of the last remnants of this flawed days of the judges leadership and also the rising up of Samuel. And uh, what we witnessed last week is important to remember before we get started here because it sets the context for what we're going to look at tonight. Samuel is a young boy in the middle of the night, hears a voice, runs to Eli, uh, the priest that he's mentoring under, expecting that he called him, finds out that he didn't. This repeats a few times until Eli finally recognizes that maybe it's the Lord speaking to Samuel, despite the fact that the word of the Lord was rare in those days. And Samuel's given a prophesy for his mentor, Eli, that his household is coming to an end uh, and that his sons and himself will all die on the same day. Now, the other piece of Samuel that we haven't addressed yet that becomes a major issue, another transition from the days of the book of Judges to 1 Samuel has to, uh, has to do with the Philistines, okay? So the Philistines were these latecomers to the land of Canaan who God uses repeatedly in the book of Judges to get Israel's attention. And although there are some Philistine defeats, some places where Israel has the victory in the book of Judges, uh, they've pretty much anchored themselves into the land and are major constant enemies of Israel. And so it's in the, this setting, all of those pieces, up and coming Samuel, doom over the household of Eli, and the problem of the Philistines that we get to chapter 4, verse 1. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now I want you to notice that this is where the story begins. Um, in fact, jump back to 321. The Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord came to all Israel. See the connection there? How did the word of the Lord come to Israel? Through the word of the Lord coming to Samuel. But I want you to notice that Samuel is surprisingly absent from what follows. Okay? He's not going to show up until after this initial mess. And that's because this story, like I said a moment ago, is an interwoven one that is both a rise and a decline, which is both a fall and a remedy. Um, and although Samuel is becoming the mouthpiece for God, he's yet to be an Israel that's in a place to hear. Israel isn't ready to receive from Samuel, and like many of us can probably relate to, they aren't in a place where they can hear from the Lord until they hit literal rock bottom. Okay, So look at what happens here in verse 1. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. So the lines are drawn, the initial attack is taken out, and Israel loses 4,000 men, and they retreat to their corners. Verse 3, when the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, 
Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. And so the leadership of Israel gathers together. They're somewhat surprised by the defeat. They recognize that their God is sovereign and in control, that he's the place that victory is found, and they even ask the right question, right? Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? But they don't ask him. They ask one another, and then they come up with an answer, and their answer is, let's bring the ark to the front lines, and then victory is assured. Now, Clearly, this has a level of superstition here, but it's important to recognize what the problem is. There are other places where we find the ark on the front lines of battle. If you read through the book of Joshua in the days of the Exodus, there's a direct correlation between the priesthood and God's movement and victories. The real problem here has to do with the fact that it is not the lack of the presence of the ark. That wasn't the issue. In fact, Jeremiah gives us a commentary on this that gives us details that we didn't know in Jeremiah chapter 7. Now, Jeremiah is writing well after the days of David, late in the kingdom. Solomon has built a new temple. So instead of this tabernacle set up at Shiloh, they have this beautiful, incredibly wealthy building. And the prophets have been coming and saying, judgment is on its way. Now notice the parallel here. In fact, these words also will sound familiar to you because of the ministry of Jesus. But notice what Jeremiah says here in verse um, Uh, Let's pick up in verse 8 of chapter 7. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known? Notice that that's mostly just a roster of the Ten Commandments in reverse, right? That's the breaking of the commands verse. And then, come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we're delivered only to go on doing all these abominations? In other words, Israel looks at the ministry of the prophets and they go, it doesn't matter. That's not a big problem. Yeah, we've got some issues, but we also have the temple. God is with us. The temple will deliver us. We have God on our side. And so, verse 11, has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. He says, okay, so get this, when Jeremiah refers to the temple as a den of robbers, the idea is this is where they retreat for safety. They go out, they do their crimes, and then they go back to the cave, open sesame, and they're in the sanctuary, so everybody is safe, okay? That's the context, of course, for Jesus' words when he quotes from the minor prophets and says, didn't God say this was, my house was to be a house of prayer, but you have made it, and he uses Jeremiah's words, a den of robbers. But notice this, this is where the reference to Shiloh is. Verse 12, go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. He says, if you think the temple will keep you safe, take a little pilgrimage, go to Shiloh, and ask what happened there. 
Uh, even in today's archaeology, we have the evidence of a relatively severe destruction at Shiloh. Now, that's not told us in the story here, but it does connect the dots, okay? And so they bring the ark to the front lines. It's not merely superstition that the ark is some sort of Indiana Jones superpower. It's deeper than that. It's God is on our side, as evidenced by the ark, this victory is assured, but their wickedness is unrecognized and undealt with. So back to 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, which is about the longest title you'll ever find for the Ark. The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts. It doesn't matter how much esteem they give this object, they are off the path of where they should be. It continues here. Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. Remember, the ark has this lid that we often call the mercy seat, where these two cherubim were kneeling and facing one another with their wings touching, focusing on the presence of God as if it was his throne. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. That's good narrative foreshadowing, okay? That's the, like my, uh, my two-year-old daughter likes to say, dun-dun-dun. That's the problem, right? Yes, the ark is there, but it's in the hands of a corrupt priesthood in uh, service of a distant people, and God has just been reduced down to something they can use for their own ends, Okay. So notice how quickly this goes down, verse 5. As soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise and the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Okay, so notice here, they remember the stories. They're familiar with the Exodus. They remember Pharaoh and the plagues. And they go, okay, that's what we're dealing with now. Now, if you've been with us for the book of Joshua, or even occasionally in the book of Judges, divinely inspired fear is a primary weapon God uses for victory. Okay? It's a psychological warfare. And so here, they respond in relatively the same way. They're afraid. In fact, they have to kind of psych themselves up for battle. And so notice verse 9, Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. And then notice the reversal in verse 10. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And they fled, every man to his home, and there was a very great slaughter, for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. So they're completely routed, right? Even in their retreat. Last time they retreated, they were able to keep the dead down to 4,000, but now they lose 30,000 and the ark is captured, and Hophni and Phinehas, the priests, are killed, just as Samuel had said would happen. But here we're going, okay, that's two. Two of the three, what happens next? Verse 12, a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh that same day. Side note, 
that's an accomplishment. That's 20 miles uphill, okay? And so he feels his duty as a soldier to report to Shiloh these things that have happened. He runs the whole way, um, and so he shows up with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head, which is a sign of mourning. Verse 13, when he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. When the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. Okay, and so Eli is waiting for news. He's worried about the fate of the ark preemptively. And the man comes into the city, he tells his tale, and the whole city is a loud weeping. The ark comes into the camp, and everybody shouts for joy. The runner comes into the camp, and everybody's crying. Eli already knows what's going on, but notice verse 14. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? And the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. Okay, so he, he's only hearing at a distance what's going on. He hasn't even seen the runner, and then he hears someone coming by, and so he grabs his attention, and it happens to be the runner. And so, verse 16, the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, okay, I want you to notice um, the stair-stepping we do here. Things get worse and worse and worse and worse, okay? And so, he brought the news, answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there's also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backwards from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel for 40 years. Now notice there, it's important to notice, it's not the report of the death of his sons that causes him to keel over and die. It's the loss of the ark. Okay? The significance of this really, I think, is hard for us to grasp. Okay. What set Israel apart from the nations? In Exodus, the people say this, after the law has been given, after the tabernacle is built, what other nation has God dwelling to them so closely as we do? The ark is the heart of Israel's religion, right? Their temple, their tabernacle is built around it. It's the centerpiece. It's the place where the presence of God dwells. It's the place where once a year all the sins of the people are atoned for, and now it's gone. If we seek to understand, we have to, um, we have to move forward in history and find a similar thing. You see, when, when Jesus deals with the Jews of his day, they have a same regard for the temple that Israel here has for the tabernacle, that Israel in the days of Solomon and the following kingdom has for the temple. The temple's rebuilt. They've been restored to the land. And it's become, once again, a relatively beautiful place under a 40-year-long remodel at the hands of Herod. And so even the disciples, when they get to Jerusalem, they're like, Jesus, have you seen how big the foundation stones are? And he says, not a single stone is going to be left one upon another. And they're so jazzed about this, they pull him aside and And this is when they ask the big question, what in the world is going to happen? What's the timeline on this, Jesus? And that's where we get the Olivet Discourse. But think of what it's like when Jesus' words are fulfilled 
about a generation later in 70 AD when Titus comes in and he levels Jerusalem. He lights the temple on fire so that all of the gold melts, melts down off of this golden dome on the top of the temple and it runs through the cracks of the stones and so they dismantle it stone by stone to get at the wealth and leave it as nothing. At that point, there is no Israel, right? Israel doesn't return to the land we know as Israel till the 1940s. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. No priesthood, no tabernacles, no temple, no sacrifices, nothing. That's why John writes his gospel. That's why John writes the gospel, the only gospel that's written after 70 AD, and he says, Jesus did many miracles. I have told you about these ones so that you may know that the Messiah is Jesus. And if you read through John's gospel, he's constantly referencing the temple, constantly referencing the festivals, constantly referencing the sacrifices, and all the time going, don't you see? Jesus has come. He is all those things. We no longer need this because it's gone. But the reason he has such an evangelistic opportunity is because of the despair of his people. Okay? And so Eli hears this, and whether he has a heart attack or just loses his balance and breaks his neck, here he dies once again, just as Samuel had said. Now, the story here continues on. These are not the words of Samuel being fulfilled, except in a slight sense. Samuel made clear, and the, the man of God who spoke to Eli earlier in his life made clear that it wasn't just going to be a judgment on him and his sons, but on the next generation and the following generation that there was going to be consequences. And so notice here in verse 19, now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. So she's relatively close to her due date, and the news is so stressful that it brings on her contractions, and just right there on the spot, she delivers this baby. Verse 20, and about the time of her death, uh, excuse me, yeah, about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, don't be afraid, for you've had a son. But she did not answer or pay attention, and she named the child Ichabod, which means the glory is gone, saying, the glory has departed from Israel because the ark had been captured and because her father-in-law and her husband, uh, because of her father-in-law and her husband who were dead. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Okay, and so here she is having what will be Eli's grandson, and he's born healthy, and she dies. And before she dies, her last act is to give her son a terrible name. Uh, interestingly enough, tonight we'll encounter two names we know from outside the Bible. Ichabod is in Ichabod Crane of Sleepy Hollow, right? And then we'll come to a Christmas story later on. Uh, but it's a terrible name. The glory's gone. She sees this and she recognizes the significance of it and she places the name upon her son like a curse. Okay. Now, there's another issue here which is not just, not just the failure of Israel which is deserved, but also simultaneously, correspondingly, there's the victory of the Philistines. Now, how would the Philistines have seen something like this? As greatly significant, what did they notice when the ark came into the camp? This is the selfsame God that defeated Pharaoh. 
This is the self-same God that brought about the plagues. This is a God who has the power to enslave us to his people, and then they rout the enemy. And now they've gained an ark. Okay? And so, chapter 5, verse 1, when the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. Now, a couple of things. First, here, um, the Philistines take the ark to Ashdod. Now, we've been told earlier that there are five major cities of the Philistines. Ashdod is one of them. It's one of their capital cities, okay? So they bring it to one of their largest encampments, and they bring it into one of their gods named Dagon. Now, interestingly enough, Dagon didn't travel with the Philistines into the land of Canaan. He pre-existed as a god in Canaan and was adopted by the Philistines. In fact, if our studies are correct, they were, like most of their neighbors, polytheistic in nature. It was only one god in their pantheon, Dagon. And so most likely, by setting up the ark here, there are two things that they're saying. One is, we also now will worship this god, but this god is subservient to our god. Okay? And so the ark there is, is taken uh, captive as a recognition of an integration of the power of the spirituality of the Hebrews, okay? But also, they bring it to Dagon's temple because he's the one they see as providing the victory. Now, it was my understanding when I was younger, in fact, many of the older commentaries I've read, was that Dagon uh, was, was like a reverse mermaid, a fish god that was fish-headed and human-bodied. But it sounds like that's based on a, non, uh, a non-Canaanite word, that sounds kind of like the word for fish. It's actually really a stretch. Um, the other possibility, the one that's suggested, is that Dagon, like the rest of Baal and Ashtoreth, was actually uh, both a, uh, a fertility as well as a military deity, but we're not quite sure what he looked like. Okay? But either way, there's this god of the Philistines. The ark is now not just in hostile territory, but in effectively a pagan temple. And so notice what happens, verse 3, when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. Okay, so they go home at night, they come back in the morning to do their worship duties, and they find this statue of Dagon laying on its face in front of the ark. Okay, Uh, two things, one, notice it's got its face in the dirt, and then second, obviously this is a posture of worship. It's a posture of subservience. It's as if Dagon is bowing down before the ark. Now, this is most likely a stone statue. This is not something that got blown over. They don't know what's happened, so they just put him back up. And so they took Dagon, put him back in his place. But verse 4, when they rose again early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold, okay? And so here he's laying there still, but his hands and his heads have rolled across all the way to the front door of the temple and are laying there. Now, to us, that doesn't sound like anything but cruelty, okay? It's decapitation and the removal of the hands. But as we keep reading in Samuel, we'll discover that it is common practice in those days to decapitate military uh, I was going to call them defeatists, um, military losers, 
as well as to, in at least one case in 1 Samuel, to cut off their hands. In other words, God chooses here to speak a language they'll understand. What's the misunderstanding the Philistines have? We have been given the victory because our God is stronger than your God. And so he makes clear here in military terms, there's only one victor here. There's only one sovereign, and it's the God of the ark. It's the God of Israel. And so Dagon here is decimated. In fact, notice this. Basically, if there's going to be a temple here, it's going to be a temple to God, and he doesn't like roommates. Okay? And so this is dealt with. Um, Now, it's interesting that we see this as well, similarly, later in Israel's history. And so, later in Israel's history, after the days of Jeremiah, he says judgment is coming, and specifically, judgment is coming from a people called Babylon, also idol worshippers, okay, large pantheon. In fact, we have done digs of Babylon where we found closets that are floor to ceiling filled with idols, okay, it was a major part of who Babylon was. Um, And so, Israel is kind of shocked by the possibility here, and then the temple is ransacked, and once again, the ark and all the instruments, they're taken and they're placed, according to Daniel chapter 1, into the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar's treasury. Okay. And if you read Daniel chapter 1, it's fascinating because it says that Nebuchadnezzar has the victory, but God gave it to him. And so he sees it as taking these things because his gods are more powerful, but it's not until his uh, following two kings later, Belshazzar goes, you know what? I'm going to bring those out and use them as party favors, and that's when we get the writing on the wall. That's when we get the judgment. We see the self-same God behaving in the same way, fully willing to punish Israel for their trust in God despite their wickedness, and yet still speaking clearly to the pagan nations that he uses as an instrument of judgment. And so, Here this happens, and then notice verse 5. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. Okay, and so because that's where the hands and the head ended up, out of respect for their deity, they now step over the threshold when they enter in. Now, I think that's a really fascinating addition here. This is what we call an ideological detail, right? It says, this cultural experience you have now, here's where it comes from. But it's intriguing to me that it's included here because effectively it opens the door for, if you will, evangelism to the Philistines. To go, don't you know your own history? Don't you understand the reason why no one steps on the threshold in a house of Dagon? It's because when the ark was there, the ark won. Right? And so we have this added detail, but the story's not over. Look at verse 6. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and his territory. And so a plague breaks out, one that causes tumors. If you have an older translation, uh, it's hemorrhoids, or if you have a really old translation, it's emerods with an E. Uh, But the word just means growths. We're not really sure what this is. We'll see in a second that it's bubonic-like in the fact that it's somehow communicated by mice. Uh, But here, we're told by the narrator that this is God working against the Philistines 
Um, and so, verse 7, when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What should we do with the ark of Israel? And they answered, Let the ark of God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of God to Israel there. Now, we're not told the logic there. Maybe they're thinking whatever we've done here is a specifically Ashdod problem or a specifically Dagon problem. And so we need to start fresh away in a new place. Maybe they believe that whoever the gods worshipped in Gathar are stronger and so it won't be a problem. We're not told. But what's going to happen here, the irony of this situation, is you effectively get a plague-filled victory tour. Right? It, this is something I think we still understand today. This is the greatest, uh, the greatest spoil of the war. And it's now going to make a tour around all of, Phil- uh, all of Phil- uh, Philistia. I think that's right. All of the Philistines' major cities. Okay? It's similar to the way that uh, ancient relics that belong to a particular people make a museum tour today. Uh, And we find many places in history, including the ancient Middle East, where things like this are done and it's a symbol of victory. It's so everybody can enjoy the warfare that only some people were involved in, right? But as they do so, the plague follows and the problems spread. And so verse 8, we read that, verse 9, but after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing very great panic And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They've brought it around the ark of God of Israel to kill us and our people. And they sent it, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel. Let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city, The hand of God was very heavy there. And so effectively what we get here is is a spiritual hot potato, right? Nobody wants it. They all want it to go away. And finally they come to conclusion, we have to get rid of it entirely. We have to send it back to the people of Israel. Verse 12, the men who did not die were struck with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us, with what shall we send it to its place? They said, If we send the ark of God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And so the logic here is basically, okay, it's not enough just to get away from this object. We, we have to somehow turn away the wrath of God. And they use the phrase here that's used in the book of Leviticus for a guilt offering. Don't send it away empty. Send it with a guilt offering. We do not know if this is something they would have understood from their own religion and they're applying it to the God of Israel or if these priests have just enough familiarity because of the synchronicity of Israel's worship that is interwoven to go, well, he needs a guilt offering. Whatever it is, they don't understand the um, requirements for that. What's a guilt offering in Leviticus? It's an animal, right, bled out and slaughtered. 
Instead, they do probably the worst thing you could do to worship the God of Israel. They make images, okay? But nonetheless, this is the idea. We need to appease the God somehow. We don't just need distance. We need to get off this, uh, this God's bad side. And so, uh, verse 5, so you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand off you and your gods and your land. And so they make out of gold these images, some of them of tumors, whatever that looks like. I mean, it's, it's gross, whatever it is. It's like a lump of gold, but lumpier, I would imagine. And then also of mice. And so, like I said, most likely here we're dealing with, a, they, they understand the correlation between this plague of mice and the tumors that are breaking out, but they also understand the correlation between this material disease and the spiritual reality that God is bringing upon them. So their plan is to make these 10 gold offerings uh, and send it with the ark. Okay. Uh, and then verse 6, why should you harden your heart as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts after he dealt severely with them? Did they not send the people away and they departed? In other words, he says, don't put this off any longer. Don't forget the story of Pharaoh who constantly said, yes, but okay, you can go. Wait, I changed my mind, right, and continuously hardened his heart. He says, they went anyways. They departed. Don't think that you can spare yourself by some sort of time saving. Do it right now. Verse 7, now then take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there's never come a yoke and yoke the cows to the cart but take their calves home away from them. So brand new cart and then the cows are not normal farming cows that are used to dragging a plow or moving a cart. They're dairy cows. Okay. In fact, they're dairy cows with young. Okay. So Imagine for a second that you're a mother dairy cow and your calf is taken away from you and you're strapped up to a device you've never been strapped to and you're slapped on the butt and you start to move. Where are you going? You're going home, right? You're going to go to your calves because that's what mom cows do. As we'll see in a second, the reason they do this is specifically because they want to know for sure this is the hand of God and not circumstances, and so they come up with a little bit of a test. And so here they choose these cows, and then notice um, verse 8. Take the ark of the Lord, place it on the cart, put it in a, box, uh, in a box at its side, the figures of gold which you're returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that this is not his hand that has struck, and struck us, it's happened by coincidence. Okay? So if the cows just go straight right down the road and walk all the way to Israel, then we'll know that this is really the God of the Jews who have done this to us. If they move off to the side, if they return, if they go nowhere, then we, we, we can just let this go. It's a bad thing that happened. It's not the judgment of some God. Okay? So verse 10, the men did so. And they took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord in the cart in the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now, I, I love this portion of the story because it's so, uh, so visible. 
Think of this, okay? Here's two cows mooing all the way. Behind them is a cart that has the ark and a box full of golden tumors. And then behind them is all the Philistines walking, waiting to see what's going to happen, okay? And so from this, they get to a place called Beth Shemesh. Uh, And then notice verse 13, the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and when they lifted their eyes and saw saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. So they're working in the fields, the road cuts through the fields, they look up and here's this cart that clearly has the ark on it with a bunch of Philistines behind it, and they, they recognize it for what it is, right? The glory had departed from Israel, everybody knows that the ark is gone, and here it's being returned, Okay, now here's a significantly interesting point. Beth Shemesh is a Levitical city. Okay? According to Joshua 21, uh, verses 13 through 16, when the Levites are given cities across all of Israel, and they get to, uh, I believe this is the tribes of Benjamin, but it might be Ephraim, uh, when they get to this land, these ones are doled out, and not just are they doled out, but they are doled out to the sons of Aaron. Okay? That's the priesthood, not just the Levites who serve the people in their place, but the Levites who are assigned to the worship of God. In fact, one commentator suggested, and he didn't footnote it, so I don't know how he knows this, that this is actually the sons of Korah's city. Okay? Now, Korah is the sons of Aaron who were assigned to carry the ark. Okay? In other words, the ark goes exactly where it's supposed to. It's like when you're dealing with magnets, okay, and the object always moves to the place where it's supposed to be. This is not just the first Jewish city, it's the right people for the job, okay? And so they look up, they see this, they rejoice. Verse 14, the cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the Ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it in which there were golden figures and set them up on a great stone. Uh, and the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrifices, sacrifice sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. Okay, so the upper echelon of the Philistine leadership has followed this through, sees what happens, and they go home. And then we have, like we often find in the Old Testament, an inventory. Stock is taken. So verse 17, these are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of the cities of the Philistines that belonged to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And so once again, the author says, if you'd like to see where this all went down, in the field of Joshua today, you'll see the big rock where they made these offerings. But remember, the whole reason Israel lost, lost the ark is because they've also lost the art of rightly worshiping God. And so here we have the priesthood, but the last time we saw the priests, it was Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, not a great crowd. And the only other priests we've seen in recent history are the ones at the tail end of the book of Leviticus, also not good representatives. So surprise, surprise, what happens here? Verse 19, he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh, that's the Lord, because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great 
great blow. So the ark is sitting here. It's not at Shiloh. You know, the tabernacle and its setup has been destroyed. And so it's just sitting there out in the open. And the residents of Beth Shemesh can't resist themselves. And so it sounds like they open it. Okay? Even when the ark was carried in the wilderness from place to place, it was always covered. It was only the Korites uh, who could carry the ark, and it was only the high priest in that but once a year who would actually see the uncovered ark. But here it is, and like I said, maybe they open it up, and so a plague breaks out in Israel. Now, your translation may say that 50,070 were killed, or it may say that 70 were killed. The manuscripts are almost in unanimous agreement that it's 50,070, okay? There's only a few exceptions, and they're all relatively new. They're newer manuscripts. So why do your translations say 70? The reason is because it's hard to imagine 50,000 occupants in a small town like Beth Shemesh, okay? Also, 50,070 is a uniquely not round number. As we've been reading about all these things, how many died in the first battle? 4,000. Does that mean exactly 4,000? No, of course not. It was probably 3,965, but it's 4,000. But 50,070, in fact, not only is it awkward to say, but when you see it on paper, if it's in your Bible, it's a weird number, right? 50070. 50,070. Not even 57,000 or 50,700. 50,070. Um, but the, it would be significant if that's the number. Not just from a historical standpoint, because that's what it seems like the oldest uh, copies we have, but also from a story standpoint, okay? Because it's 30,000 and 4,000, so 34,000 that are killed by the Philistines. But here, just so they remember who's actually their enemy at the moment, it's 50,070. But either way, they don't yet understand. But they're starting to. So remember, Samuel is here. He's ready. He's got the word of the Lord for Israel. Israel's going to hear it, but they're not asking for it. They lose the ark. The glory departs from Israel. It comes back, and there's this massive plague because of their mishandling. Let's finish up the notes, and then we'll finally get moving forward in what God is doing. So verse 20 the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, and to whom shall, he, uh, whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Adiminab on the hill, and they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. Now, Eleazar's family will be the reigning priesthood in replacement of Eli for the rest of Israel's history, okay? This is how it happens. But notice how similar this is to what happened in Philistia, right? The, it's in the temple of Dagon. This plague breaks out, and they go, we've got to send it elsewhere. They understand the seriousness of the situation, but they've only got half the information. Instead, instead of going, okay, what do we need to do? They just go, it's easier just to get safe distance, okay? But notice here, verse 2, from that day the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim a long time past, some 20 years, and all the house of the Israel lamented after the Lord. That's what we've been needing. That's what we've been waiting for. Now they're lamenting, not just lamenting that they lost the Philistines, they're lamenting after the Lord. They realize how far the distance is, okay? 
there are many places where revival breaks out in Israel. Okay? One of them is in the days of King Josiah. And what happens is somebody digging through a back room of the temple finds a copy of the law of Moses and brings it to the king and goes, I think this is our Bible. Is this, is this the great book that sometimes we find out in our histories? And they read it through and they go, oh my gosh, we are so off course. And so they summon all of Israel and they read it and there's this public weeping and this repentance. And for the first time in a long time, they reobserve the festivals that they've been avoiding and they start to get back on track. It's one of the great revivals. What we have here is similar. Remember, over and over in the book of Judges, some people of Israel would cry out to the Lord for deliverance, but it wasn't a crying out about their sin. It wasn't the crying out of repentance. It was a cry out of pain. That all changes here. And so now we have a mouthpiece for the Lord in Samuel, and we have a ready audience in Israel. And so, verse 3, Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the asterisk from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. And so he calls here for national repentance, for the removal of all of the idols, for all of their synchronistic worship to be set aside to serve God and him alone. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth and they served the Lord only. And remember, why did they lose the last fight? Because they didn't do this first. Now they've done this, and Samuel goes, okay, now it is time to deal with the enemies out there. Okay. Verse 5, then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Okay, so finally, we get what we were always looking for in the days of Judges. We have all of Israel gathered. We have all of them gathered in repentance before the Lord. Uh, and then notice here that they fasted that day, and when it says they poured water out before the Lord, the idea here, just like fasting, is, Lord, getting things right between you and I, more important than water. Okay. Now remember, we can only survive a couple of days without water. Okay, this is why it says in Deuteronomy that man shall not live by bread alone, but needs every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's recognizing the significant necessity we have of a relationship with God is even more important than the basic physical needs we have. And they're expressing that. They're putting their money where their, where their mouth is and they're fasting. Uh, they want to set things right. Now, verse 7, when the Philistines... Uh, heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And the, when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Okay, so notice here, Samuel doesn't gather them as an army. He gathers them in this, world, you know, this nationwide fast. But the Philistines see it. They don't know what's going on. Either they see this as a great opportunity or most likely a terrible threat. Because why else would the whole nation gather unless they're going to summon their armies. But notice this, the Israel's afraid, verse 8, people of Israel said to Samuel, don't cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. 
As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. Look at the priorities there. The army is enclosing in, and Samuel goes, okay, right now, we need to finish what we were doing. We've repented. Now we need to uh, dedicate ourselves. We need to consecrate ourselves. And so he offers here not a guilt offering, but the burnt offering, the one that says we belong completely and fully to you. But get the tension of what's going on here. Imagine what it would be like if you were gathered at some sort of a revival service and knew that the enemies were pressing in at the gates, but they maintain their focus. They know that this is priority. They know that this is first. Uh, And then... Verse 10, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far below as Bethkar. And so we get the difference here between a people aligned with the God of Israel and the victory they have and a people against the God of Israel uh, and, and the failure they have. Um, and so there's a whole routing here. And when it says here, they struck them as far below as Beth Car, that means they drove them way back to the borders of Israel. Okay? They finally started to push the Philistines back. And so, verse 12, Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, which literally means our stone the help, or the help is our stone. Um, uh, But I want you to recognize why he places it there. He says, for he said, till now the Lord has helped us, okay? In other words, the idea of this stone is, this is how far our victory has come. This is how far the Philistines have been driven out. This is now a line in the sand. Let's not let them back in, okay? Um, Now, once again, this is the other holiday name we know, the one for Ebenezer Scrooge. Um, but if you've read enough Dickens, you know that he just chose that name because he loves weird names. All of his characters have interesting names, and so Ebenezer Scrooge um, clearly foots the bill. Um, But basically, notice what's happened here. Samuel has unified all of Israel. They're finally having a victory over their enemies, and he's making a stand, okay? There's no going back, and remember, for Israel significantly this isn't just about warfare and territory this as we've just read is about faithful obedience to God because God has made clear in the book of Deuteronomy that the thing that will lead into them falling before their enemies will be their unfaithfulness to God and so the stone is not just a defensive perimeter it's not just a line in the sand for the Philistines a challenge that says from now on It's also a constant reminder of repentance. In fact, you may have noticed that the author alerts us to the place of this stone way back in the beginning of chapter 4. This is the place where Israel fails. It's also the place where Israel succeeds. And the difference is repentance. I believe it's the author of Hebrews who uses this phrase that I love. A repentance worth not repenting of. That's what God calls us to. A turning around that is so solid. Remember when Jesus talks about those who come into the kingdom and set their hands to the plow? And he says, if you look back from the plow, you're not even worthy to plow the kingdom. But the author of Hebrews puts it a little bit differently, not as a threat, but as a reminder. 
okay? That, that this repentance is so good, it's so sweet, it's so life-giving. Don't ever repent of your repentance. Place your Ebenezer. And once again, we need to notice throughout Israel's history, there is a tangibility to their memorials, okay? This stone is set up as a reminder, okay? One of the things that we kind of make a mistake on sometimes is because the Bible decries idolatry and the use of imagery, assuming that means that the worship of God is merely spiritual, that there's something uniquely unholy where things are physical, where things are tangible. For the most part, we didn't get that from the Bible. We got that from the Gnostics, okay? The Gnostics were these first century philosophers who basically assumed because of all the bad stuff we see in the material world, the material world itself must be bad. In fact, they believed this so strongly that they figured that whoever created the universe must also be bad. And so they had all these iterations of gods who created gods going all the way back, a copy of a copy, all the way back to its pure source that was completely spiritual and would never touch soil. Okay. And so when they hear about Jesus, there's a lot they like about that, but they also go, let's just change one thing. Let's not make him real. Let's not make him tangible. Spirituality is an escape from the physical world. So we still have that tendency today. But I want you to notice here that there is an inherent tangibility in Israel's worship. Even back in Deuteronomy, they weren't to set up statues of God, but they were to write out the word of God and put it on their doorposts. Right? And so if you go to a Jewish home today, you'll still see the mezuzah right on the doorpost. And if you're walking through with your host, they'll probably reach out and touch it on their way through. It is a physical reminder. Why? Because we are physical beings. We're not just spiritual beings who happen to be driving a body, like a bad 80s movie. Uh, it, we are our bodies, okay? If you scratch my car, you hurt my property. If you cut my arm, you hurt me. We are physical. And so our worship of God is physical. It involves tangibility. Think of the posture of worship as it's demonstrated over and over in Scripture with standing and singing and dancing and kneeling and falling on your face. Think of the significance both of fasting, like we saw in this passage, and of communion. Jesus says, I want you to do two things for me, and both of them are tangible. One, I want you to step into a body of water. I want you to identify with my death, burial, and resurrection through baptism. Two, I want you as often as you do it in remembrance of me to eat, to drink. Why? Because we're physical. Okay, I can't resist, so very quickly. The best theory I've ever heard on deja vu has to do with just this fact, okay? We have five senses. I, I'm assuming I don't have to review them. But the idea of these five senses when it comes to deja vu is that when we form memories, we don't just form visible memories or audible memories or even visible and audible memories. In, integrated in that is the smell of the memory, is the touch of the memory. Now, those aren't as strong, but when we just have those, a smell sets us off, a touch sends us off, one of our lesser senses sets us off. This theory is that deja vu, we fill in what's happening around us in connection with that. And so we have that sense of familiarity, but it's not a complete memory, okay? If you're a storyteller, you know that using vivid details 
Talking about food in a way that makes people salivate, for example, makes you a better storyteller. Why? Because it makes it more receivable. Okay? I can tell you a story audibly and leave out any of those vivid details. You'll get it, but you won't remember it. It won't take root in you. Okay? Our worship of the Lord, like Israel's, involves a tangibility. It's okay to have visible reminders. I don't care if it's a post-it note on your dashboard of your car or a specific spot that you claim is your own. This is a place where God worked. This is the summer camp where I came back to the Lord. And every time you drive by the freeway in that place, you remember. You remember your Ebenezer. God is my help. Okay? There's a valid and a valuable side to that because that is how God has designed us. As people who are psychosomatically unified, both soul and body. Okay. So they set this up, uh, and there's a lot to rejoice in in this text. Finally, we have uh, Israel as they're supposed to be. Now, side note, it doesn't mean Israel is where they need to be. Okay. At this point, the ark is in one place, the priesthood is decimated. Even where we're going to see Samuel operating, as soon as the tabernacle is set up in Jerusalem, like it's supposed to be, suddenly all that worship is outlawed. He's going to be offering sacrifices on the high places, right? He's offering sacrifices, and although he's been raised in the peace priesthood and may have Levitical roots, we don't know his lineage. He's not from uh, Eleazar's tribe, okay? Uh, a lot of work needs to be done, but another thing that I love here about Israel, and I love uh, that we need to understand about repentance is repentance always begins where you are. And it has to be a true turning. And it has to be a complete turning. And it has to be, in some sense, I don't want to say a permanent turning, uh, turning because that's not how life works. right? It's not you make a decision once and you never go back on it or it wasn't real. But you do make a committed turning, but then you are where you are. And God meets us where we're at. And we see that consistently in Israel's history. In the days of the judges, they're kind of a mess. And God doesn't say, I'm going to wait till you clean up your act and then we can talk. What he looks for is a heart that's turned towards him. What he looks for is the humility that says, clearly I'm off base. God, come and save me. And that's what he finds here in Israel. And he patiently takes the time to move forward. It's the same thing that Paul tells us in the New Testament when he says, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus our Lord. God's got a start in you, but he's surprisingly patient in moving you forward in your sanctification, in revealing to you places, uh, places where you have yet to fully surrender, places uh, where you don't even realize yet uh, how deep the rabbit hole of your own sins go. But repentance is not about fixing everything and then coming to the Lord. It's about fixing your heart, as it says here, solely upon the Lord and then living life, walking towards him. So, uh, not only that, but notice verse 13, the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel and the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Samuel, the cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. Then notice this, there was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Okay? Now, if you go back to the end of the book of Judges, those are the two people in the final chapter of the book of Judges that God is using in judgment, the Philistines and the Amorites. Okay? They're both dealt with in this time of Samuel's 
life. And so we get a summary here, verse 15. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. Uh, Those cities, along with Ramah where he lives, are across Judah, Benjamin, and Manasseh. And so it's a pretty large swath of the center of Israel. It's not across the entire nation from Dan to Beersheba, like we've read about, but he's making a tour uh, and he's, he's serving all of Israel. He's judging all of Israel. Verse 17, then he would turn to return to Ramah for where his home was there. There he also judged Israel and he built there an altar to the Lord. So effectively here, we have Israel restored to where they were supposed to be. Okay. Uh, we finally see the reversal of the stories of the judges. We have a unified Israel under a judge named Samuel. Um, he's of a new lineage and a new line, cut off from the corruption that we were seeing in the days. There's, uh, there's a na- nationwide repentance. Okay? Now, when we get into next week's chapter, we're going to have to decide if that's a continued move forward or a move against the grain as Israel asks for a king. And so this week, if you're coming back next week, I'd ask you to consider this. Okay. Consider the fact that we have simultaneous to the story of Samuel, the story of Ruth. Okay. Where Ruth and Boaz find each other by God's sovereign help and get married and Ruth becomes the great-great-grandmother of King David. That's something that God is doing leading up to the birth of Samuel, leading up to these things. In the book of Deuteronomy, we have laws given for how kings are to behave. They're to write a copy of the law for themselves. They're not to multiply women. They're not to multiply wealth. They're not to multiply horses, nor are they to begin a horse trade with Egypt. Okay? That's laid out all the way back in Deuteronomy 8. All these things are in place. And the next thing Israel's going to do is come and say, we need a king, and God's going to be angry. And we have to figure out why. Okay. But we'll leave it there for tonight. Um, Let's pray. God, we know what it's like to be Israel. To forget the truths of who you are and what you've done. To turn away from you, to worship other things to allow ourselves to get so convoluted in our own faith that in word, we're still with you. But indeed, we're against you. Martin Luther said that the Christian life is one of continuous repentance. And so we know wherever we're at tonight, Lord, there's more work to be done. I pray, God, like you did graciously in Israel, whatever it takes, even if it takes uh, the enemies of the Philistines, Open our eyes to our need for you. Turn our hearts back to you. And I ask as well, Lord, that you would continue to speak. We're told in the beginning of this story that the word of the Lord was rare in those days. Later in Israel's history, you warned that there will be a famine coming on the people, not of food, but of your word. And I pray that that would not be so for us, Lord. I pray that you would give us ears to hear as individuals and as a church, as a nation and as a world, Lord, that your word would find fertile soil in our hearts and bear fruit in our lives. 
And I pray, Lord, that you'd continue to raise up laborers to send out in the harvest. Sowers who go out to sow your word, speak your truth. God, I pray that we would be a people again who are rich with the word of God and committed to upholding it, to trusting it, to following it. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Have a good night.